This podcast is intended solely for educational purposes and presents information of a general nature. It is not intended to guide or determine any specific individual situation and persons should consult qualified professionals before taking specific action. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not those of Milliman. Hello, and welcome to Critical Point, brought to you by Milliman. I'm Robert Eaton. I'm a principal and consulting actuary in the life and long-term care space, and I'll be your host today. In this episode of Critical Point, we're going to talk about what everybody can't stop talking about, artificial intelligence. Specifically, we're going to kick off a series of Critical Point episodes on AI and insurance, and today we'll look at how AI is transforming the insurance value chain. With me are three of Milliman's top experts on this topic. Uh, We have Hans Leida, who's a consulting actuary focused on health insurance, and he also works on one of our risk adjustment software products. Welcome, Hans. Thanks for having me, Robert. Uh, We also have Tom Peplow. Tom is a principal and director of product development for Milliman's Life Technology Solutions Group. Uh, Tom led the Integrate Product Group for five years and is responsible for the technology strategy for Integrate at Milliman. Hi, Tom. Hi, Robert. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, Corey Gregg is an actuary and technical lead overseeing implementation of those Life Technology Solutions products. Corey, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So I want to start this series of AI and insurance and talk about how, you know, just generally how technology has has shaped our work in the past. Uh, We actuaries are uh, no stranger to having improved technologies influence the daily work that we do, and that's bled through into our work at insurance. So one question that I think we often ask ourselves is, how do new technologies help us in, you know, our professional lives? And specifically, how do they help us, um, you know, make decisions? I want to flip this over to Hans Leida with a, a first question of how do we optimally help kind of artificial intelligence and human decision making together? Um, we've got new technologies, and I'm I'm curious how I'm curious how we might kind of do this work in our daily lives in, in a way that sort of improves decision making. Hans, you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks, Robert. So I think it's you know we we have been developing complicated AI models for many years, um, you know, to help our clients understand healthcare risks and make decisions. There are a lot of AI models used in underwriting or other applications. And yeah, like you said, the challenge, I think, is how you make those decisions and know how to use both you know, humans and these AI tools optimally together. And that's true for actuaries as well as professionals. You know, we have to make a lot of choices in our modeling or you know, often we say we apply actuarial judgment. We're more and more getting uh, more sophisticated tools involving AI that can support us in making those decisions, just as other tools we might make might help other professionals. Um, I think that it's an interesting challenge that hasn't really been looked at as deeply as you might uh, (laughs) like uh, to figure this out. You know, I think often we're really excited to build these complicated models, because that's that's at least for me as an actuary, one of the things that I really enjoy in my work. But figuring out how to take the advantages of those models and you know and, and realize them in the real world is complicated. 
One thing we can do, I think, is look at other professions that have faced this challenge and see how it's been going. You know, one place in healthcare where AI was adopted and, and has been implemented sort of more rapidly than many other uh, professions is in radiology. And I saw a recent paper come out where they're actually studying this problem. If you have a model that, you know, in aggregate is doing a better job at detecting uh, potential cancers, say, in um, radiology images than the radiologists are. Um, but when you have give that information to radiologists, it doesn't always result in optimal decision-making, where optimal would mean where the radiologists were right and the model is wrong, they, they make the right decision. And where they're wrong and the model is right, you know, they also make the right decision, right? It's, it's sort of how do you have people be appropriately critical of the, the model um, and rely on their own expertise at the right times and not at the wrong times. That's almost a new skill altogether. Uh, if you think about it, I, I think about um, how artificial intelligence sort of transformed the chess world, you know, back in, in the 1990s when uh, Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov. And since then, the chess-human kind of hybrid uh, play has really, uh, really picked up in, in chess and has been kind of something that that people watch for and have watched for a while. But that's that's almost a new that's almost a new strategy, a new behavior altogether. Maybe in the case of the radiologists, it's going to take a new brand of radiologists to to work better with with artificial intelligence in those models, and and perhaps that metaphor can be extended to actuaries also. Yeah. The other thing they were studying is, you know, what information besides just the model prediction can you give to the professional to help support that decision making, right? Like it, you know, we we hear a lot of concern around black box models. There's actually a lot you can do to unpack uh, most models and give information about why a prediction came out the way it did. Uh, the question then is, how can you communicate that to? people who are using the model in a way that actually helps them make the right decision. And I, I don't think the, the paper I saw uh, didn't suggest that they'd figured that out yet. It just uh, it was sort of trying to measure the impact of you know, giving that information or not in various formats to the radiologists. So I think this is still an area where more research is needed. I think that's fascinating and some, certainly something that, that I'll be watching also, you know, as it applies to radiology, I'm sure it'll apply to many other fields, both in, in medicine and in practice there, and then also other professionals. So, something that's kind of near and dear to our heart is is actuarial actuarial modeling. You know, Hans, you mentioned that just now. I, I want to go to Corey, who works a lot with implementing um, actuarial models and processes. Corey, tell me how you see you know artificial intelligence really impacting. Um, actuarial modeling, and and give me some of your reflections there. Sure. Yeah. So, so where I think I see a lot of uh, use for artificial intelligence, particularly generative AI, in our actual modeling work, is uh, around modernization of actuarial systems, which is you know sort of a big area uh, of, of my focus. What we have out floating around out there in the industry, um, you know, in many cases, a lot of legacy systems, legacy code, 
um, and legacy processes, you know, a bunch of Excel workbooks that were strung together uh, to do some post-processing of actuarial valuation uh, or, or you know, input preparation. And you know, where AI really can help here is in accelerating the pace at which uh, actuaries can convert those legacy codes into something more modern. Uh, and to give an example, um, you know, I've been conducting an experiment on my own with uh, some of our interns here. Uh, and, uh, you know, previously working with interns, you know, they're smart, smart kids, fresh out of college uh, or, or still in it. And you kind of got to spoon feed them the um, specifications for what you want done, um, you know, when they're, they're you know, writing code, uh, actuarial code for the first time. Uh, and I, I would spend a lot of time explaining, well, what is this concept? Uh, you know, we're doing some type of extrapolation, uh, you know, yield curve development, uh, and junior staff haven't necessarily been exposed to that in their education at this point. Um, you know, and the, it, it can contrast that with something like ChatGPT, where you know, the context of you know, technical terms is easily you know, apparently understood by um, uh, ChatGPT. You don't have to explain what Smith, what Smith Wilson uh, smoothing is to ChatGPT. Uh, it will uh, under, understand that concept. And so, um, you know, what I've been doing on occasion is let's have the generative AI take my specifications, write some sample code, hand that off to a junior person to read through, understand, and clean up, test. Uh, and and so you know we're still having that same level of review. You know we know that the the code that's being implemented is correct. We've tested it, um, but the the speed at which we can build out that and write it write it all um, is is much much faster than a human doing it. Uh, so you know, that that's really an opportunity to lower the cost barrier for uh, recoding things or you know cr creating new code. Um, in different languages, more modern languages uh, than uh, we experienced in the past, where you know, someone really needs to understand the original source language and the new language and the actuarial um, you know, piece, the, the math behind everything as well. I think that now can be divided up among more people or you know, AI can fill the gap in some places of you know, an actuary's knowledge of particular coding language. Yeah, it seems like there's a whole lot of low-hanging fruit, you know, in a lot of those areas that you mentioned, Corey. Um, this this reminds me, I heard uh, the venture capitalist, Mark Andreessen, discussing, you know, how knowledge can be divided into kind of two camps, like fluid, fluid knowledge, which is the ability to, um, you know, uh, he said, assimilate and synthesize things. And so you mentioned smart interns, you know, they have a lot of fluid knowledge, right? They're, they're, towards the end of their uh, college career, probably, and um, really, really sharp. And then there's, you know, something like crystallized knowledge, which going back to the, the Smith-Wilson smoothing, I don't know what that is either, by the way. So, you know, those are, those are going to be tasks where something like a, a you know, GPT-4 or, you know, in the future, GPT-7 and 8 are going to have just tons of that. They're going to have the crystallized knowledge in spades they can draw from, you know, trillions of, of past writings. Um, I, I really am optimistic like you are, I think, for a lot of this assistance, 
you know, on the on the technical side to to help us with with these models. I, I'm wondering if I can if I can turn to Tom Peplo real quick. Can you talk to me a little bit about how about how generative AI or AI in general within insurance, you know, how does this how does this technology stand to impact the the IT teams within these companies? You know, these are client companies of ours or other insurance companies, you know, uh, globally. Yeah, it's going to be interesting times ahead, I think. Like Corey explained, is um, we're already starting to pick it up in some places internally here. So I think part of the challenge I have for the strategy of our products and is thinking about how we position them so Corey is able to do that um, much more smoothly than he is today. Um, but like Han said, AI has been used for a long while in certain applications, but those applications are specific and the, and the, and the expertise that go into building those applications are also quite um, not widespread in the business. So you're moving from you know, having some really bright data scientists and software engineers building some really complex models to solve some really interesting problems to it being available to everybody in the business to use. And that's a very quick transition from where we are today to where we're going to be in the future. Um, and you can see the upside potential of this with Microsoft's announcement about how they were going to charge people for a tailored chat GPT just for their business without all the worry of data leaking out on the internet and what questions you're asking and intellectual property becoming available in you know a generalized model that everyone on the internet can use. So the vendors are moving faster than the, uh, the IT teams are, or even you know we're able to move. Um, so I think step one is to try and think about what's the strategy for the big players in the AI market, Google, um, Facebook, Microsoft, Databricks, those types of people. They're, they're looking to generalize and solve these problems at scale and sell them to everybody in the world. And that's just going to make it very, very easy to do some of the things that Corey said. But to, to do that at scale, you've got to make sure you've got a data foundation in place that includes all of that specific insight that your business has. So those interns are not just learning how to solve these specific problems, this crystallized knowledge in the world of you know everything, but also the crystallized knowledge of an organization over, in Milliman's case, 75 years of doing business. Um, and that's a huge competitive advantage to any business. If they can kind of weaponize all of that work they've done in the past and put it in the hand of an intern who can just get going, that's massive, right? You, you can't afford to be slow on that adoption because if you are, other people will just be considerably better than you at it. Um, and then that's a risk to your ability to compete in the marketplace when everybody else is ahead of you. So what, what I'm worried about is um, how do you not get in the way of this revolution that's coming? Um, I, I started my career um, in the year 2000 um, and Google was just a thing that was starting. No one in my business stopped me using Google, but there was absolutely people around our company who were picking up books and showing me how to find an algorithm from the index page. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I was typing into Google, thanks. So, but there was no barrier then, right? Google wasn't a thing that was blocked in the dot-com startup I worked at. But people are approaching generative AI as something that they maybe should lock down as opposed to embrace. And that, that gives me some concern. But I think the big vendors are doing what they can to make it safe for people to use. And then it comes down to 
every company in the world trying to figure out how they make their data available to this in a safe way. And if you crack that nut, I think it's going to have some really big upsides for businesses. So it, it seems like it worked out for you in, in the early Googling. Um, I, I love this point, by the way, that you made about how all of the knowledge that your business has gained over the past you know, decades uh, can be can kind of accrued and maybe agglomerated into you know, a, a, a company-specific model, a wealth of information that, that everyone has available to them. I, I think about uh, this, this book, one of these business books that was recommended to me, uh, The First 90 Days, which talks about you know, a lot of critical things that, that someone who's starting new at a company can do within their first 90 days. And one of the things that the book recommends is, is sort of find somebody that's been around for a while, you know, someone with a lot of legacy information and you know, essentially try to soak up as much as you can, try to understand how the state of things in the company today came to be so that you can better help the company in the future. And imagine now, you know, everybody having, you know, insurance company ABC's GPT, which, you know, has in it. You know, like all of the all of the past valuation reports, all of the past earning calls, uh, and you know some idea on how to kind of answer questions from all of them. It's it's really a it's really a powerful powerful opportunity. This reminds me, Robert, of one of my partners who's since retired, Lee Wackenheim. One of her amazing talents, I guess, that I always admired was to remember details from projects that we'd done many years previously. So we'd get a new client in the door and they'd have a question and she'd say, oh, you know, I think we did this before for this client. And you'd go back and back then it was, you know, you pulled a box out of storage to get the paper files. And sure enough, you know, here's here's the same problem we solved before. Having even like a personal, you know, AI co-pilot or assistant that could help me with, you know, I don't have quite the memory that Lee does. Um, I rely heavily on being able to search my email. If I could easily and in a, you know, even more intelligent fashion, search the work that I've done over the course of my career, it would make me incredibly more effective in every part of my job. I think that kind of ties together what Tom was saying about Google in 2000, right? A skill you needed to learn was how to separate the garbage from the gold out there on the internet. And, you know, the, all that stuff in the box that we've saved, now that's gold. And we, you know, giving that to the AI is you know, just increasing the, the chance we're gonna, you're gonna come up with gold when you ask ChatGPT for the answer. And going back to the radiology paper too, it's a, it's a similar thing, right? How do you differentiate the garbage from the gold when, um, you have an AI model telling you the answer and you don't really know where all that uh, input or an output came from. So, you know, I think that's something people will develop, right? Just like you get better at being a, a search um, uh, investigator uh, and, and you know, digging through Google and finding the right answer. I mean, people will um, be able to discern whether their generative AI is giving them useful output or not, or be able to ask the right questions um, to uh, to uh, help uh, guide it in the, the right direction to make sure they get useful output. This makes me makes me kind of feel that those of us, um, you know, in, in in insurance companies who are able to 
um, use maybe some of the higher level skills of discernment, you know, from, from model output or process output, now that those processes uh, are perhaps more automated or are, are being done in, uh, more in part by machines. Um, d- does, this, does this actually, in some ways, increase the demand for some of those, those higher level skills? Uh, I know some, some of the actual organizations refer to it as the, the kind of the EQ and, and the AQ, the adaptability. Um, I, I, tend to, I tend to think it does. I tend to think that, you know, we should, we should kind of hone and develop those skills that allow us to ask the right questions of, of certain of these models. And in way, in ways we've been doing this, you know, for the last, you know, three, three or four decades, right? As, as technologies have produced better and better software. But, but how does that change our, you know, the hiring and recruiting process? You know, Corey, will your interns, you know, tomorrow look the same as they did yesterday? And I'm just curious to, to hear how you all think this will kind of flow through to our need for some of these higher level skills. Yeah, I, I can start there. I think, you know, right now when I hire people, I look for the ability to learn things rapidly more than anything else, like a demonstrated ability to learn, to think about things, um, to ask good questions. I I love it if people come in the door with some skills already under their belt, but the the work that we do in my shop as consultants and, and in the products that I help manage is all about keeping up with a changing world. Um, so the, technology that anybody knows when they come in the door is not the one they're going to be using in a few years in our work with clients. So that I don't think is going to change. Um, but I do think it will, you know, change the way that people move through their career path. I think that uh, those that can learn to use these tools to their advantage will be able to be more productive more quickly. Uh, I, I think the other needed ingredient though is really um, somebody who has a healthy dose of skepticism when it comes to using artificial intelligence tools to do their work you know I, I think even right now you know I am I'm looking for somebody who accepts feedback on their work who checks it over once they do their first draft and looks to make sure it makes sense I I once went when I was in grad school I took, uh, I had an assignment from a professor on some research we were working on, and I, I went and, and used a computer algebra package to do it. He would do this uh, longhand, all these co- complicated uh, calculations when he was on the plane going to conferences. And I came back proudly because I had calculated it really quickly compared to how he would have. And he took one glance at it and said, well, he messed up because these should be whole numbers, not fractions. And he was right. I didn't understand the problem well enough. And if I had, I would have known immediately that my slick computer answer was wrong. Um, so we'll, I think we still need a human element like that. And we need to develop those skills in the next generation to make use of the tools to produce more work quickly, but, but make sure it's quality work, make sure we still have those sanity checks built in. Yeah, I can build on that a little bit, Hans, that I've always looked similarly for people who have learned to learn. And uh, I do remember, I can't remember who said this, but there was someone quite smart talking about the education system's primary job is not to create professors, but to create people who can learn. And the pace of change in 
technology is just accelerating. It's it's already a hockey stick, and it's just getting more. It's just going to get steeper with AI coming out. So the ability to learn is even more important because you you, you know past performance is not a predictor of future success, and who knows what's down, coming down the pike. So if you've got an adaptable workforce who are enthusiastic about change, who can embrace it and figure out how to leverage it to their advantage, then it's only good for the business. One of the interesting things I think that's going to start to happen, though, is we acknowledge, I think all of us, that learning how to use, how to be a good prompt engineer is probably going to be quite an important skill. Um, and that's why I think it's critical that education systems don't ban the use of generative AI, because if you're not learning to use it, you're not learning to learn as effectively as you could, because one of the things that it's absolutely doing, and as Corey mentioned, as I found out too, is it's it's just a really good learning aid. And if you have a critical mind, and I think one of the things that we've established at Milliman is the, the peer review process helps you, you know, kind of find the gaps in your work, like you said, um, Hans, the, the should have been whole numbers thing. Um, as long as you've got someone who's also your set of guardrails, um, encouraging people to adopt this technology to accelerate their learning is a good thing. And I see the professors at universities' job is the guardrails around the students to help them leverage the technology correctly. We do, we absolutely don't want people who are just copying and pasting answers from the internet. Um, and, and there's probably some people who have passed because of the ability to do that whilst this technology is starting to be understood by everybody. Um, but we want them to be able to use it to be able to get their answers as good as possible and start to dream up new things. Because if you think about what we want is people at the top who can evaluate and come up with new ideas and create new things. And the, and the, these algorithms can't do that. Um, they need us to do that. They need people to do that. And to Robert's point, we also need people who can communicate those ideas clearly with others so that they can see the value and help them become adopted. So I think we're going to be doing less of the lower cognitive work and more of the higher cognitive work, but you can't, we can't do the higher stuff without knowing the lower stuff. And I think a great way to learn the lower stuff faster and therefore increase your capacity to do the harder stuff is to use tools like this. I, I want to close on um, a- asking you all kind of an open-ended question on, on the general insurance value chain, you know, from, you know, inception when a customer is first introduced to the, the concept of the insurance company all the way through, you know, the binding, the delivering of the policy through, um, through policy administration and finally to, to claim. Um, I- I'd like you all to maybe provide some comments on, on where else you think, you know, some of the AI that we're seeing coming down the pike are going to uh, influence the rest of these components of the value chain. One of one of the things that comes right to mind for me is um, in customer service. You know, where I, I think that customer service learning from past uh, conversations with insurance customers um, and helping use all of that like past crystallized knowledge to better inform the next. Um, you know customer service representative who's helping somebody, you know, with one of their insurance policy questions, whether that be benefit eligibility, whether that be how to to go about making that claim um, or or anything else related to that. I think customer service, you know, both in insurance and probably in so many other sectors really stands to uh, stands to be transformed here in a really positive way for consumers. But I'm curious um, if you all have any other thoughts around kind of the rest of the insurance value chain and and where else outside of these technical realms 
that that we focus on most of the time. Where else do you see, you know, the ecosystem kind of being um, being moved uh, with with the latest round of AI? I'll go first as the person that knows least about insurance, <laughs> and I think that's what's so fundamentally cool about this tech is I don't I don't understand insurance. Buying insurance is difficult. So if something can help me understand what I'm signing, so they've got this huge policy document with all these things in that I can better understand, that's great. And then later on, probably several, hopefully several years after signing this, I need to use it for something bad that's happened to me. Being able to understand how I can use that thing that I signed money years ago to help me out when I'm really stressed in a bad situation is huge. So I think for, for the consumers, understandability and maybe we'll be able to move away from this kind of concept where insurance is, is sold but not bought because the newer generation of youngsters growing like to like to find things out for themselves and they're pretty don't really trust salespeople. So if we can move it to a point where insurance understandability is now something that Tom can understand without having to be explained to him will really help people get more coverage on risks that they need covering. Uh, that that's fascinating, right? So you mean something like uh, if I have a personal assistant at home, right? Like Amazon mm-hmm. now has one of those little robots that'll follow you around. I'm I'm not in for this. Uh, I'm yeah. not in for this just yet. But you could imagine that thing sort of having a personal financial and product history of you know you or us. And you know if you go to the hospital, say for a critical illness, uh, you know if you're diagnosed with cancer, they might remind you, right, that they have this that you have this insurance policy and and how to go about claiming those benefits. I think that's fascinating, Tom. I like that. Yeah. And I I think uh, helping to meet people where they're at as well. You know, I I think a lot of people face barriers to understanding their insurance coverage that might have to do with, you know, something as simple as translating into different languages or, you know, helping people who haven't got a mathematical background or, you know, a back background to understand the financials of how some health insurance policies get extremely complicated, right? And understanding when what copay or coinsurance or deductible applies to what service, what's covered. So I, I think providing something that bridges that gap for different types of, you know, insured people could really move the needle on people making use of their insurance and accessing the benefits that they're eligible to to use. That's such a great point, Hans. I I think about how complex, you mentioned health insurance policies and in my work often life annuity, long-term care policies, they're tens of pages long, you know, and they use terms that I'm, you know, I look at once and as a customer, I'm never going to use again, but imagine that policy coming with uh, you know, a little explainer bot. You can just ask questions too. That just tells you about that. And like you said, in in many languages, um, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of great great opportunities here. Uh, Corey, did you have anything you'd like to to round us off with on uh, insurance and the value chain? I think I mean to the communication to policyholders is one end, but there's also communication up. Right, actuaries need to explain the results to senior management, to other divisions within an insurance company. I uh, you know we've seen you know out in the wild doctors are using uh, generative AI to help uh, communicate with their patients more passion uh, compassionately. And uh, you know, I think there's probably an untapped opportunity there for actuaries to hone their communication and explanation of really technical results um, you know, sort of up to the chain as well uh, to investors and to uh, the board and uh, other 
stakeholders that actuaries need to communicate with. Yeah, that that's a terrific point. I I, I think it's often kind of I think it's often kind of overstated uh, that you know people tend to tend to think actuaries may not have great communication skills. I I think that we actually do have quite good communication skills. Corey, to your point though, even even with good communication skills, having you know an extra hand in uh, and kind of talking through some of the implications of our work to to senior management, um, that that's going to go a, a long way to hopefully add add clarity to the businesses we do. So yeah, I, I really like that. Yeah, actuaries are often uniquely situated within insurance companies and other organizations because the nature of our work requires us to get information from and communicate with a lot of different areas within a company. I I saw a colleague of mine once present at an industry meeting and, and he analyzed email within an organization and tried to figure out like, what were the connections between people based on who emailed to each other? And he demonstrated actuaries actually were among the most connected individuals within a lot of in, uh, organizations that he studied. And I think that that, that gives us a, a unique um, perspective and maybe a unique place in helping insurance organizations make the best use of these tools. Uh, also, you know, we we have to, as you said, you know, we have to do the math, understand the quantitative side of things. We often are in the weeds with the code, and then we got to go and explain it to people who uh, don't speak that language. So that's that's maybe another way that we can play a part here. Is you know, we we hopefully will understand something about what these tools are doing and their strengths and weaknesses. Maybe we can help colleagues uh, in other parts of the organization understand what is and isn't possible with them when they try to use them in their work. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, Thank you, Corey, Tom, and and Hans for joining me. Uh, For those of you listening, to learn more about Milliman's AI and insurance expertise, visit milliman.com. You've been listening to Critical Point, presented by Milliman. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your colleagues on whatever podcast listener you have. We'll see you next time.